The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, we're going to talk biofilms. Yeah, these bacteria are pretty smart. Is kombucha a biofilm? The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Do you make your own kombucha? Not anymore. Why? I don't need another thing to take care of. <laughs> Who started the SCOBY? Earth? Perhaps. Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you? I'm doing very well today. How are you? I'm doing well. Well. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to this podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. It's where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, and integrative therapeutics. And if you're new to the show, hopefully you'll go to iTunes or Spotify and perhaps subscribe. Do that. Tell your friends. Yeah, share this Tell episode. your family members. <laughs> Tell strangers on the street. The, yeah, they'll think you're weird and run away, but maybe they'll like the show. I don't know. But if you have further feedback, what can they do, Michael? They can send that feedback to podcast at gdx.net. That's our email address. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean, though? I mean, there's only so many projects you can have going yeah. at one time. Like, yeah. it's enough. You've got the kombucha, and then you've got, like, your sourdough starter that uh, you've got to, like, feed the potato so flakes. Upkeep. It's like, and, you know, I've got a snail at home. Obviously, the kids are high priority as well. You have so. a snail? Yeah. Like, an, like a pet snail? In the fish tank, yeah. Really? Yeah, all the other fish um, we need to replace, but this is there really a snail, snail is hanging on. In the, like underwater? Can I ask a question about yeah. the snail? Uh-huh. Do you have a name for it? No. I mean, after the entire population of your fish tank has turned over like four or five times, <laughs> you, you just stop naming them. I get it. I get it. Question two about the snail. Yeah. You're telling me you keep it in your fish tank and it lives underwater? That's right. I don't think I realized that a snail could live underwater because I only ever see them like, you know, after it rains on the sidewalk and stuff. I never thought about it. Are you sure it's alive in there? Yes. How? How do you know? It like moves around and it does various things. It or eats. is it just floating around? Uh, no, it's it's stuck to the side of the wall hmm. under the water or it helps to clean algae off your little aquarium accoutrements. Can all snails live underwater or just some types of snails? That I don't know. There's probably different types of snails out there. You want to Google it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't... It's probably the most I've ever thought about snails, honestly. But uh, you seem to be doing a lot of typing. It, the entomology can't be that difficult. Got it. Okay. What do we got? First of all, entomology is a study of bugs, sir. Well, that's close. Yeah. Well, in fact, there are different kinds of snails. And no, all snails do not live in water. Uh-huh. Okay. Freshwater snails and sea snails live in the water, but land snails do not, like the garden snail. You can drown a garden snail by putting it in your fish tank, so be careful out there. So let me get this straight. In the phylogeny of snails, <laughs> it starts with snail at the top, and then it breaks out into sea, land, and freshwater snails. Well, there's a garden snail, too, so I think that might be a I, subsect that, of the land. That's part of the land yeah. snail, I'm assuming, hmm. right. What about the sidewalk snail? Those are slugs. <laughs> 
Anyway, enough snail talk. Uh, what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about biofilms. And I'll say in functional medicine and on the phone, we talk to doctors. It's always the concept of, do I need to give a biofilm disruptor? And people talk about biofilms. And I don't think people really fully understand what they're even asking. Are you talking about me? Because I don't think I fully understand <laughs> what you're asking. Well, I think we should break down biofilms today. I think that's a good idea. So let's start here. What is a biofilm? <laughs> Right. And I'll give you my layperson uneducated sort of answer to that, which is bacteria and other organisms, sometimes yeast. Right. They sort of form these communities Mm -hmm. in this could be either in your lung or in your GI tract. And as part of that, they start producing kind of a a structure. Yeah. Like a gooey matrix that they can that they inhabit. And somewhat protects them. Am I close? Is you that, are. Okay. You are. And we often think about this because they have to uh, they have to adhere to a surface first, right? So the more commonplace where people used to talk about this is in things like catheters or medically implanted devices, such that they started to create these things to prevent bacteria from adhering to the wall. Because once these things adhere to a wall and get together, they start forming this biofilm. So let me ask this. Mm-hmm. Is it different types of bacteria that get together? Is that accurate? Like, what mm-hmm. are there certain bacterial friends that they like to <laughs> cohabitate with? Are yeast involved? I'll are they allowed to come along? I'll tell you, every single bacteria has the potential to form a biofilm. And I don't think it's there are specific friends. Any bacteria, once you're close to each other and there's contact, they can create this whole biofilm matrix to kind of hang out in. I guess the question I'm asking too is, is it all the same bacteria? Like, is it all Pseudomonas bacteria? Or is it like Pseudomonas hangs out with staph? Yeah. Yeah. And in essence, they're doing this to protect themselves, right? So, you know, they kind of figured their safety numbers, let's get together and they can use this as a virulence factor and against protection against antimicrobials. But what's really going on within this biofilm is fascinating. And disgusting. (laughs) They actually have their own structure, something yeah. that's called EPS. Yeah. So this whole thing is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you get these bacteria, and first they, they sort of find their target. They sit okay. down on, on some sort of surface, and then they start secreting this extracellular polymeric substance, EPS, mm-hmm. which is really just composed of like proteins and lipids, nucleic acids, and various other things. It actually has water channels as they're, what? As they're building this. And... <laughs> They start to recruit more and more bacteria and and communities into this whole biofilm that they're producing. And then eventually down the road, it becomes so big that it actually they send parts of it off to go find other homes. Like they build these big cities and then they send out like colonies of biofilms. It's it's fascinating. And for whatever reason, I can't explain it. It makes me mad. It's terrifying. And then you think, okay, this EPS not only gives the structure to the biofilm, but it helps to trap nutrients, which is why there's all these like different gradients that happen within that. These are smart bacteria, man. And so part of the reason why it's protective is because it's just a structure. Mm -hmm. It's like having a house, right? Right. But another thing that's crazy about this is they recruit these what's called persister cells. Oh my goodness. And they're just a minute portion of the entire population, but they're these dormant microorganisms Mm -hmm. that are really strongly antimicrobial. They have strong antimicrobial properties. They serve as like the, the watch guard. Oh my goodness. And so like, if you try to introduce an antimicrobial, they all kind of turn to this persister cell who's like, hey, don't worry <laughs> about heavy. it, guys. I've got <laughs> I've got this taken care of. Then they start doing all their gene swapping and stuff mm-hmm. like that to protect the community. It's ridiculous. But 
in addition, something has to be done. Listen, in addition to that whole little city with aqueducts and gradients that you just talked about, they also can communicate with each other within the biofilm, right? Yeah. So the the bacteria and various organisms can can actually communicate with something called quorum sensing. And I, even these two words together don't <laughs> sound good. Like this sounds like something that either happens in space, right, or something nefarious. Oh, no that groups of bacteria are doing. Oh, it's nefarious, all right. So they're talking to each other using quorum sensing, but they also send out signals to other organisms because they try to limit the biofilm because they don't want it to grow too big that it can't sustain itself. So it's kind of like, you know, Facebook for biofilms. Okay, so we agree that this is terrifying. Uh Um, The question I have for you, if all bacteria can do this, why do we care about this clinically? Why, Why should we be concerned about biofilms, Michael? Well, obviously, they're much better at this than maybe even we are. Mm -hmm. And we don't like not being the best on the Mm -hmm. planet at something. That's true. But aside from the existential concerns that it (laughs) raises, it also makes them much more difficult to treat, right, Right. in in our clinical cases. So this is something we need to be aware of because the entire purpose is for them to to protect themselves. And Mm -hmm. if we're trying to go after some sort of, you know, bacteria or bacterial colony, then we need to be aware that they have this defense mechanism. And we just talked about one of the main facets to this is their ability to tolerate antimicrobial, something called biofilm antibiotic tolerance, or BAT. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do? Like, well, first, where might we be concerned about this clinically? Well, you think about patients in whom you've given an antimicrobial therapy and the infection is either recurrent or just doesn't go away. And so you think, could biofilms be playing a role in what's protecting this microbe? Do we have a list of what bacteria make biofilms and which ones don't? Maybe that would be helpful because we yeah. can look out for those. Well, I think all bacteria can do it, but the ones they think about most are things like Candida, right, or Pseudomonas. There's some staph species. E. coli. Mm-hmm. I mean, it begs the question, are there any bacteria that don't form biofilms? And maybe we don't have to worry as much about that if it's, uh, you know, if we see that present in one of our patients. Such a great question. But if you think about it, the bacterial biofilms that occur in nature have a consortium of different types of organisms, right? So it's possible that if you have a single species that doesn't form a biofilm, it can exist in that multi-species biofilm itself. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Why is this making me so angry? (laughs) You're so competitive against these bacteria. Well, I mean, is there anything good about these biofilms? Like, what is there any redeeming qualities? For us or for the bacteria? For us. I mean, I don't care about the bacteria, obviously, because I'm (laughs) mad at them right now. Well, we know bacteria are ubiquitous in nature, right? Therefore... Biofilms are ubiquitous in nature. Mm -hmm. And so if you can consider that we need it, right? There's an ecology, there's this whole like environment that requires the communication of bacteria. But engineers have found a way to use it to our advantage in things like water treatment programs, remediating contaminated soil and groundwater, as well as extracting metals and elements from things. All right, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And interestingly, you might find this interesting, Mm -hmm. Michael. What's that? Actinobacteria often uh-huh. grow on ants, oh, allowing here we go. the ants to maintain path- pathogen-free fungal gardens. You mean it protects them? Yep. So what that's we're doing right. with these biofilms, we're protecting ants. Yes. Because that's what we need to do in this world is protect the ants. <laughs> I mean, that's a nightmare. That's a nightmare <laughs> scenario. What we ha- Something mm-hmm. has to be done. Yeah. How do we get rid of these biofilms? Well, Especially the ant up. one. No, it's a great question, and it's one that we get all the time in mm-hmm. speaking to clinicians. Right. And so the question is, are antibiotics enough? Do we need something else? How are we getting rid of these biofilms? My question exactly. Right. Well, I think important to note, some antibiotics are actually biofilm disruptors as well. So there's that. Like, for example, ciprofloxacin and ampicillin 
have been found to effectively penetrate and diffuse through some biofilms and then reaching some of those distal cells. And Cipro also had some similar penetration. But there are a lot of different ways we can target biofilms. Yeah, and not just pharmaceutical agents. There's a lot of uh, herbal substances, natural agents that can also be biofilm disruptors. I think, you know, primarily of a lot of the things that we actually use to treat bacterial infections in general are herbal antimicrobials like clove, oregano, things like that, but also things like uh, cinnamon and mm. curcumin, as well as what we talked about previously, N-acetylcysteine. And we talked about one of N-acetylcysteine's main roles was it inhibited biofilms in the lung, right? right. So Mm -hmm. uh, these are some great things. And another classic example is cranberry, Hmm. right? The whole mechanism of action is that, yeah, Yeah. it uh, prevents the adhesion of the bacteria uh, in the urinary tract. So cranberry is really great as a biofilm disruptor as well. And the nice thing about these natural products, right, is that, like we're talking clove, thyme, oregano, is they're both antimicrobial and biofilm disruptors. So you don't necessarily have to worry about hitting both aspects, which is important because you want to make sure that you're having an antibiotic, antimicrobial on top of a biofilm disruptor, because if you're just giving a biofilm disruptor, then... Bacteria still alive. Yeah, and then they can disperse, go elsewhere, and, and actually may even spread infection. Another place of interest as it relates to biofilms is in something called antimicrobial lipids, mm-hmm. like fatty acids in Got essence, it. right? Cool. And so Robert Koch, who was a very famous microbiologist, you probably recognize that name. He actually found the antimicrobial properties of lipids back then when he was trying to study how the, how soap, anti, there's antibacterial effects of soap. And so in so studying that, he's the first to say that some of these fatty acids might actually be antimicrobial. And in fact, a lot of studies currently, as it relates to breaking up biofilms, are around things like DHA and EPA, which are in fish oil. Interesting. You could theoretically use fish oil to treat biofilms. Mm -hmm. There's another one. So they were looking at uh, glycerol monolaurate as another fatty acid that might be useful in disrupting biofilms. And they were studying this as it relates to the ability to change biofilms in dentistry. Hmm. Right. So when you think about that and you think about monolore, where is this coming from? Coconut. Right. And so we think about this whole aspect of oil pulling and how that might actually one of its mechanisms is by disrupting biofilms. Wait, what's oil pulling? Really? Mm-hmm. It's so you take something like coconut oil uh-huh. and you essentially swish it around in your mouth for 10 minutes. Spit it out. Never heard of this? N- no. Never tried it. Why then, is it called I oil think. pulling? Because the oil is like pulling the bacteria out of your mouth and you yeah. spit it out. Yeah, originally, like they, they think about it for detoxification purposes, sort oh, of, and that's okay. why it's like pulling Got toxins it. out of your Got mouth. It. But yeah, oil pulling. Never heard of it? There's probably mm. a bunch of these things that you haven't heard oh, of. Oh, I'm sure. Say. I'm sure. You guys some bring up words that I've never heard of. old-timey remedies and yeah. cures and things like that. It makes me think of, what if I just listed off some of them and you tell me what you think it might be? Oh, here we go and again. Call it, what is it? What is what is what is what is what is All right, this is going to be fun, Patty. Oh right. no. Are you ready? No, you ready? I'm not ready. I'm nervous. What is it? First one. Okay. Ear candles. Oh, ear candling is very important. Ear candles are very important for people because should you have someone sitting next to you who's trying to read in the dark, right? Or maybe you want to go to a birthday party and lie on your side. Ear candles are very important. Nope, that's incorrect. Ear candles are typically <laughs> used for earwax, though I kind of wouldn't recommend it. In what way? Like you light a candle and you stick it in your ear? There's special with these wax con- conical structures. You light the end on fire. Either way, you're going to catch your hair on fire. This makes no sense. 
Next one is sitz bath. Oh, come on. Everyone knows what a sitz bath is. It's really just sitting in water. But I will say the name is redundant because by virtue of the fact that you're in a bath, you're sitting. There's no standing bath, is there? I mean, a standing bath is a pool. Yeah, but you don't like pools. So here you go. Uh, Mustard pack. Hmm. Everyone knows what a mustard pack is. You put mustard on your hot dog, you open the mustard pack. Nope, that's incorrect. A mustard pack is when you pack mustard powder onto a certain area to bring circulation and heat to that area. Like what area? Like your chest. You're putting mustard on your chest? Like powdered mustard, not like French's Uh, yellow mustard from the store. Oh, good. I was thinking that was going to get really messy there. Next one. Mm -hmm. Ionic foot cleanse. Oh, that's something that happens in a religious ceremony. You know, you're washing the feet. You do the ionic foot cleanse. No, that's incorrect. It's a foot bath where you pass microcurrent through the water to uh, draw out toxins as well as uh, treat things like toenail fungus. Next one is neti pot. Oh, I know what a neti pot is, and no way would I ever pour water up my nose for any reason. I don't care how beneficial it is. How about a carrot poultice? Oh, yeah, that's something you rub on your calluses to smooth out your skin. No, that's a pumice stone, but how about (laughs) a wet sheet wrap? Oh, well, after you draw out the toxins with your carrot poultice, you put them in there. (laughs) And I'm not going to ask you about constitutional hydrotherapy. Oh, good, because we're not doing politics on this show. The last one I was going to ask you, it didn't get to, uh, skin brushing. Oh, like get a hairbrush and brush your skin? Sort of. Something like, like that. Like when you have a rash? No. Or a bug bite? No. Oh. It's to stimulate circulation and move lymph. Using a hairbrush? You, you, it's not a hairbrush. It's kind of a specific brush. And you, you can use a towel, too. But you're essentially you're moving up your arm, up your leg. You're trying to bring lymph back into sort of the center of your body where it gets more circulated. Mm. I mean, it makes physiologic sense. But I somehow think you make some of this stuff up. No. The names. Nope. Skin brushing, it's best done after a contrast shower. What? <laughs> Maybe it's why you have all the biofilms. <laughs> no, I think it's... These are all English words, but it's just when you string them together in that fashion, I start to question my sanity. Like a poultice. Uh-huh. What, what is a poultice? What is the definition of a poultice? And is this carrot poultice made of carrots? Yeah, it's made of shredded carrots. Um Anytime you, a poultice is when you take something that's kind of moist and apply it to the skin. can be different herbs. In this case, we're talking about carrot. Uh, and it's used to combat inflammation, pain, you know, things like bug bites in the field. There's a lot of herbs out there. You just chew them up, stick it on your skin. So it's kind of like when they used to take a raw steak and put it on a black and blue eye? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. Well, what about... Unless you're animated. <laughs> what about back in the summer when I, I got bit by the hornets on my porch and I put frozen peas on there? Is that technically a pea poultice? No, that's a cold pack. (laughs) Well, I think we covered biofilms pretty well. We did. We did. And I think important things to remember, take home points, are Mm -hmm. that, you know, although the bacteria are conspiring against us, they're working together. We also know that we think about biofilms as a problem in patients in whom we're having a hard time eradicating infection. It's recurrent. So those are the places we think about it. But a lot of our antimicrobial agents already have biofilm disruptors in them. Yeah, that's important. And, you know, it kind of just makes me think of this fact that it sounds like most bacteria are already living in some sort of biofilm. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like we're kind of we're dissecting the anatomy of where they live, but it doesn't necessarily it's always the case. It's not like we're distinguishing biofilm bacteria and non-biofilm or somebody who has biofilms and doesn't because it sounds like they're they're fairly ubiquitous. Yeah. So why it doesn't necessarily change what we're thinking of clinically. 
at the end of the day. Exactly. And I think it's such a hot topic and a buzzword. People are starting to get worried about them. But guess what? They've been around all this time. And I could see where it could be a target for future drug development, especially with things that are, are pretty significant from an infectious nature. But you could also make the case that perhaps if we didn't have so much antibiotic resistance out there, mm-hmm. then we wouldn't be so concerned about biofilms. Just a thought. Preach it. Next time on The Lab Report, how do medications and supplements affect stool testing? Probably one of our most asked questions. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. You know, neti pot's not really a big deal. It is for me. I don't like to go underwater. I don't like water in my face and in my nose. Like, no. No, no, no. Seriously. Uh Like, pouring water up your nose. Like, pouring it in there. Yeah, it's actually kind of refreshing. No, it's not. Think of it like you're... I I bet the same thing was said for the first person who said, here's a toothbrush. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I was like, you're going to stick a brush in my (laughs) mouth? (laughs) 